The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Jesus was absolutely nothing that the world expected. More specifically, he was certainly not what the Jewish people of that time were were looking for, were expecting. His teachings were radical. They flipped things on their head. It was was unexpected. I mean, we just worked through a section where Jesus was teaching, and he said some radical, unexpected things. For example, uh, we just went through this, but if you remember, he says, but I say to you who hear... Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. Not pray that they be smited, by the way. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. As I said, Jesus was unexpected. But it wasn't only his his teachings, it was his life. It was everything he did. It was unexpected, wonderful, turning everything on its head, not only in the healings and the miracles that we see. Those were incredible, by the way. I mean, healing the blind, cleansing lepers, the lame, it's just incredible. But not only those, think about his whole life. Think about who he was, he, the way he chose to live his life, the humility, the simplicity. We're talking about the king of kings and lord of lords, yet he was born in a, in a barn of a small Middle Eastern town, not a palace. There was no ceremony. It was, it was humility. It was this wandering rabbi, and that was Jesus unexpected. This is our foundation of our faith, Jesus. This, he is our sure and steady anchor that we've been singing about all morning. He was the unexpected God-man. That is who Jesus is. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to talk about what faith in the unexpected God-man looks like. What does it look like to trust him? What does it look like to follow him? What kind of person do you have to be to believe a man like that. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see this incredible story. Now, we're going to start to see a lot of incredible stories of miracles. Uh, Jesus doing just miracle after miracle. But what I love here and what is so wonderful in this section, as we look at this miracle that he does, is because This section is going to start to reveal some incredibly crucial aspects of the gospel in our faith. In other words, not only are we going to see an incredible miracle, but we're going to learn something here that's crucial to our faith, our faith in Christ, and what it means for us to follow Christ. Luke drops drops us in our text uh, right out of Jesus' teachings that we've been looking at the last couple weeks. 
Uh, And if you remember in Luke 6, the crowds were pressing into Jesus, and Jesus here in this moment, they were being drawn to him, and as the crowds pressed in, Jesus gathers his disciples. If you remember this, and what was interesting here is he talks to his disciples in the presence of the crowds. So he's talking to his disciples, everyone's listening in, and he begins to teach them this radical message. And his disciples are just taking it all in. Which, by the way, I, I don't know if, this is, if you've ever done this, but have you ever had one of those moments where you read something in Scripture and say, oh, I wish I was there. I just wish I was there for that. This is one of those, oh, I wish I was there moments. Um, because Jesus here is laying out this new way, this better way. He's just laying it out and and. From that moment, Luke 7 is going to just pick right up. As you see, he says, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, uh, he entered Capernaum, and now a centurion, who had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Now, um, just pause real quick. A centurion, what is that? Who is that? Uh, it sounds, other than just being a kind of a cool name that sounds like a Narnia creature, um, what is a centurion? What would that have meant? Well, a centurion in this time was an officer in the Roman army. And this officer would have been in command of a hundred men. And as you see, it would take six centurions to come together and their men, and that would be called a tribune, right? So you see that he's, this, this man, this centurion would have been a leader, would have been a leader of men, and this was our man this morning. But here's the important thing to understand about a centurion for our time together as we read. One, he was a Gentile, not Jewish. Because of this, in many ways, he would have been an outsider. He would have been an outsider. He would have seen himself as an outsider, and he would have been seen as an outsider. Uh, He was an unclean Gentile to the religious Jewish people at the time. Number two, he would have been a competent leader. He was a leader of men. Our equivalent today would be an officer in our military. Leading men, um, being used to being in and under leadership. This was our centurion. This is who we were talking about here. And as we're about to see, he was respected. And number three, the obvious one, is this centurion had a very sick servant for whom he cared a great deal. If we keep those three things in mind, we'll be able to kind of unpack this and all the other stuff starts to make sense. So this was our man. Um, This is what we know about him as we open up Luke 7 together. So now, verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. Why on earth would he do that? This is when it's important to remember that this man, this man was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. He was unclean. He saw himself as an outsider. I I want you to think of, maybe you've seen this, this old uh, evangelism picture. Uh, If you've been through any kind of evangelism training, um, if you've grown up in the church, 
uh, for any amount of time, been in the church for any amount of time, you have probably seen this. But there's this picture that, that we often depict of, on this side we have us, right? We have us. Then on this side we have salvation. We have God, right? And in between us and God, there is this ravine. Have you seen this? And we can't get to the other side. You can't jump it. You can't fall down it. You, what do you do? You have you over here, ravine, God, salvation over here. What do you do? Well, you need help. You need a mediator. You need someone to help you get you across if you have any hope of getting across. And so this picture is used to depict our condition. We being sinners, completely lost and broken, being separated from our perfect and holy God. So we stand saying, what now, Lord? What do we do to cross this this ravine? And that's when we look to the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus, our mediator, who, who takes us and bridges the gap. Have you seen this picture? Um, I know many of you, many of you have, and many of you might have used this picture as a tool to share the gospel. Um, Well, think about that picture here in our text with our centurion, because he's in a very similar predicament here. You have the centurion over here who sees who he is, who is unclean, who is an outsider. He sees Jesus on this side, and he says, well, what do I do to bridge that gap? Me being over here, dirty, unclean, and Jesus being over here. What do I do? How do I bridge? I need help. I need a mediator, the Jewish elders. So he approaches them and asks them to be his help. To be his help. Because these elders were Jews. These elders were insiders. These elders were highly respected. They, and, and what we see is this centurion was in great standing with these elders, which didn't hurt. Oh, that these elders would go for me. Oh, that they would go. More accurately, oh, that they would go on behalf of my servant whom I love and I can't do anything about. Oh, that they would go. Again, it's just like that old evangelism picture. And we know, we know that this man was on great terms with, with these elders because one, they decided to go for him. They didn't have to do that. Um, they didn't have to do that. But two, listen to what they did. Verse four, and when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying. So they pleaded with Jesus. Not only did they plead with Jesus, but they earnestly pleaded with Jesus. And and here's what they said. Here's their case. Listen to this. He is worthy to have you come do this for him. Jesus, he is worthy to have you come and do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. So look what's going on here. Jesus, we, as the elders of the Jews, we believe that this man is worthy for you to go to. He's worthy for you to do this for, because he has done enough that makes him worthy. He has done enough 
that makes this outsider, this Gentile, this unclean one, he's done enough to make him now worthy of you, worthy of your healing power. And notice what he had done to earn himself that title. Let's read it again. He loves our nation, and he is the one who built for us our synagogue. So even though he's not one of our people, he's been good to our people. He loves us. He's friendly to us. He's worthy. He even built us our synagogue, Jesus. He is worthy enough for you to go do this. Look what he has done. Look at he was done for us, Jesus. Look what he's done. Look at his works here. He's now worthy. He's now worthy for you to come. And Jesus, hearing them, goes to him and then listen to verse six. Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, all right, <laughs> listen to this, listen to this. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, notice, don't miss the contrast. Don't miss the contrast between the elders, what they said, the centurion, what he said. See, on the one hand, the elder said, Jesus, stop, you need to come to this man because he's worthy. On the other side, you have the centurion saying, no, Jesus, stop, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to have you in my house under my roof, but more than that, verse seven says, I didn't even presume to come to you, so I'm not, even wor I'm, I'm not worthy to have you in my house to host you. I'm not even worthy to come see you to be in your presence. The elders say, Jesus, come on, this man's worthy. Look at all he's done for us, he's worthy. Yet the centurion is saying, no, no, no. I am not worthy, I'm not worthy to have you in my home, and I'm not worthy to even stand before you. So the centurion makes this profound statement. He says, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. Now, you... We read this and we think, and what's, what is going on here? Why wouldn't he just go? This is Jesus, go, right? But there's something so incredibly beautiful here. Listen to his rationale, church, for not going. Listen to why he decided, I'm not even gonna go. Listen to why. Listen to his rationale. And this is gonna, warning, this is gonna sound strange, this is gonna sound really strange at first, but it's so powerful. Listen to verse eight. For, or because, I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. So here in this scene, this man, this centurion, begins to talk about authority. And he says, look, I too am a man set under authority. I too have men under me who are under my authority. Church, the key word here is the three-letter word, too. This man, this centurion, was identifying Jesus as one with authority. He is identifying Jesus being in authority. Just as this centurion has the authority to say, troops, go. 
the authority to give them orders, and in, in expect that those men are going to execute on what he says, just as that is true. In the same way, he identifies Jesus as a man of authority. So the question is, over what? What is this centurion claim about, what is he claiming about Jesus? What is under Jesus' authority to this centurion? Well, this centurion is seeing here, claiming here, the fact that Jesus has the authority. This is incredible, over both natural and supernatural. In the same way he's able to say, troops, go. Troops, stop. In the same way, Jesus, you're able to just say the word. Just say the word. And the thing that you say will be done because it's you saying it. Just say, just, just say the word. This is who Jesus is to this centurion, and that'll preach. Amen. This centurion seems to understand who Jesus is. He ascribes to Jesus all the authority, and out of that, because of that, this centurion's faith now is on display. The centurion's faith in what Jesus can do flows out of who he believes Jesus to be. The centurion's faith here in what Jesus can do, would do, flows directly out of who the centurion believes Jesus to be. Side note here. Church, I believe Sometimes our faith in what Christ can do is too small because our view of who Christ is is also too small. Our understanding of who Christ is, his identity, his authority, the way we understand that will greatly impact our faith just as it did with this centurion. We're gonna come back to this, but I wanna get first to what Jesus says in response. When Jesus heard these things, right, he marveled at him. He turned to the crowd, he turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Burn, right? Not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. All right. The lesson here is not Jesus' ability to heal. Heal. Now, he certainly did that. We certainly see that. But that is not the primary lesson of this text. That's not the primary lesson to this crowd, to the disciples. That's not the primary lesson to us this morning. The primary lesson from this text is the authority of Jesus, that Jesus Christ has all authority. And this is a lesson showcasing who Jesus is. Notice this. Jesus praises this centurion for his faith. He's amazed by it. He marvels at it in front of all the crowd, right? He uses, Jesus uses this man's faith as an object lesson saying, look, he got it right. He, he uses this man. But also notice, church, the crowd, the disciples, the people around and hearing this, they did not witness the healing. They didn't see the healing that took place. In fact, Jesus doesn't reference the healing, as far as we know. Doesn't even make reference to it. Instead, he praises this man's faith. 
And then the servants go back home and whoop, whoop, are the servants healed, right? If healing was the point, then the crowds missed the point. But the point was not healing. The point was what this centurion claimed about Jesus. The point was, is Jesus's identity as the God-man. That was the point, with all authority. See, this centurion saw and believed in who Jesus was. That Jesus was the, the man who possessed all authority, and because of that, by his very word, things will be done according to his will. That's what's on display here. Jesus says, yes, 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 this man gets it. This man sees it. This man understands. This man has faith that's flowing out of knowing who I am. And of course, this centurion was correct. This is exactly who he is. We see it in his teaching. Just consider this for a moment. Um, He teaches as one with authority. Matthew 7, you don't need to turn there with me unless you want to be flipping for a little bit. Uh, Matthew 7, 28 says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished. And why were they astonished by his teaching? Why? Verse 29, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. See, Jesus, when he taught, didn't draw authority from anything else. No, he taught from his own authority. That's huge. It's huge. It's like, it's like me up here right now. I preach and I teach with authority. But it's not mine. It is not mine. My authority is this. My authority is scripture. And that's why we preach this. That's why we teach this. That's why we are under this. If I'm preaching something that has an authority outside of this, go home. Okay? We stand under the authority of God's word. We preach God's word. We teach, we live God's word because it is our authority. Jesus was not like me. When Jesus taught, it was his authority. Authority came from him. And the crowds were amazed when they saw that. They said, this man teaches and preaches with authority. And it's not only that, though. We see his authority over the natural world. I I love the scene in Mark 4 where, in verse 39, he awoke and rebuked the wind. (laughs) That's a statement. Rebuked the wind, said to the sea, peace be still. Now, I've wanted to rebuke weather. The last couple weeks, I have wanted to rebuke this rain. It's getting crazy, right? But it doesn't listen to me. Now, let's see here the way it listens to Jesus. It says, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, that church is authority. That's authority in his teaching. That's authority over all that is physical. And we also see his authority over the supernatural. Think about Mark 1. There's this scene that we read with a man with an unclean spirit. The text says um, that he sees Jesus, cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And listen to this. But Jesus rebuked him, just like he did to the wind and the waves. 
Jesus rebukes him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And what did the evil spirit do? Jesus said it, so he listened because Jesus spoke. Verse 26, the unclean spirit convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? I would be asking the same thing. Listen to what they say. A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. You see it. It is sickness, wind, waves, teaching, spirits, all things obeying his voice. One of the most powerful examples of this is the simple example of when Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, commands the church, but right before he commands the church to go make disciples. Do you remember what he said? He says, all authority has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Here's my point here, church. The power and beauty of the centurion's words and the centurion's faith is this. He understood who Jesus was. He understood Christ's authority in a way that others didn't. And from that understanding, because he understood that, his faith was a natural outflow of it. Many times in my walk, I have asked, prayed, and asked God, God, would you grow my faith? Would you give me faith? Would you strengthen my faith? I don't know if any of you have ever prayed that prayer. It's probably one of my prayers that it's on repeat more than any of the others. Lord, would you grow my faith? Would you increase my faith? Would you strengthen my faith? Yet, as I studied this text this week, I was reminded of something so simple and and beautiful. That our faith is strengthened as we look upon the object of our faith. Our faith grows as we see Jesus, as we behold him, as we look to him. That's how faith grows. We can't grow our faith apart from that. Our faith grows as an overflow. It grows naturally as we look upon, as we see who Christ is and what he has done. See, the centurion saw Jesus, his power, his authority, and his faith grew as a result. And Jesus was amazed. He says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Just, in, just incredible but the other thing that we need to see here, and I, we can't miss this, is how that this, just think about this, this was an outsider. This was an outsider. This man was on the outside. He was unclean. He was unsteeped in all the Jewish ways and customs and the law. He was an outsider. This man was an outsider. How is it that this man was able to see What those on the inside could not. I've seen more faith in this man than anywhere in Israel, Jesus says. How is it that even among the insiders, that no faith like this was found? I have to ask, church, how often do we see the very same thing happening in our world, in our lives? How many times have have you and I been able to see someone who's not connected to the church didn't grow up in it, not steeped in it, come 
hear the gospel and a light gets switched on and all of a sudden, miraculously, they have an understanding of the beauty of the gospel. I mean, that, have you seen it? Because that is amazing. Have you seen those people then have this faith that you, you can't admit this, but you envy it? This beautiful faith. They come, they, they heard the gospel, they see it, they understand it, they see, they understand Christ and who he is. And many times they understand it better than those who have grown up in it, who have grown up in the church, who have grown up hearing it. For some of you, that's your story. For some of you, if you were to get up here, share your testimony on that mic right over there, that would be something very similar to your story. It was a, well, I was not worthy, but I believe in Christ. I was an outsider and he made me a child of God. I was unworthy, but Christ is worthy and has made me worthy through his blood. For many of you, this is your story. As, you, as a pastor, I have gotten the joy of seeing many people who share that story, who have been saved, transformed from the inside out in this new creation, this new Christian <laughs> This person who's new to the gospel, this person who's new to the church has this faith in Christ that is inspiring and just incredible. Has this understanding of Christ that's rich and from that their faith is rich. And what's clear in scripture, and this is why I say this, what's clear in scripture and what's also clear as you and I witness the way that Christ is building his church today, what is very clear is that the gospel is not a movement for the insiders or the worthy. The gospel is not and has never been a movement for insiders, for the insiders or for the worthy. The gospel, church, Christianity has never been an elitist movement reserved for the greatest among us. Never. Instead, the gospel is founded on Jesus Christ, the Savior who humbled himself. As I said, born in a barn, in a small Middle Eastern town, rather than a throne and a palace. A humble rabbi who preaches the gospel message to all, poor and rich, those who are thought well of in the culture and those who were not. This is our Savior. The truth is, is that the gospel is a movement for the sick, for the broken, for the poor, for the hurting, for the sinners, for the unworthy. Jesus says, Luke 5.31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. <laughs> In light of that, understanding that, would you just for a, a moment notice with me the, the backwardness of the elders in this text? You see, Jesus come because this man is worthy of you. He's done enough. Is that not completely backwards, church? Jesus come, why? Because this man is worthy of you coming to him. He's worthy because even though he's a Gentile, don't hold, no, don't hold that against him, he's been good to us. Even though he's an outsider, don't, he's been good to the insiders. He is worthy. And on that basis, because of that, 
Jesus, come to him. Again, this is completely backwards to the gospel message. But so often, and sometimes without even realizing it, this is exactly what we begin to say and exactly what kind of mentality can take over our mind when we think about the gospel. Jesus, come, because I have my act together right now. It's been a good day. Jesus, come. Jesus, come, because I'm doing good. I've been going to church, Jesus. I have. Jesus, I mean, come. I'm not cursing nearly as much as I used to. Nearly as much as that guy, right? Jesus, come. Jesus, look, I've been faithful to my wife. I've been faithful to my husband. Jesus, just look at the things that I've done. Look at how much money I just dropped on Urban Faith Mission last week. I mean, come on. I mean, look at what I've given. Look at the amount of time that I'm investing. I'm serving in kids' ministry, and I don't like kids. (laughs) Fuck, Lord, what I'm doing. Come. Jesus, come. I'm going to a group. I am at church at least three times a month. I'm reading my Bible daily. You can fill in your own blanks. So, Lord, because of that, Lord, come to me and answer me. Hear my cry, because right now, I'm worthy for you to hear me. Church, any time that you and I have a so, Lord, or a because of that, Lord, and any time that so or because has anything to do with you or something you did, you've missed it. You have missed it completely because it's nothing you did, nothing you do, nothing you can do, nothing you will do, nothing you might do. Nothing about you that can make you worthy. The gospel is, a, is completely different. It turns, as I said, Jesus was radical, turning things on their head. The gospel turns this way of thinking on its head. The gospel says, come to Jesus, all who are sinners, all who are unworthy, all who are weary and in need of rest. Come to Jesus because he is worthy, because he is good. That is the gospel. We sing the song, just, just as I am. And there's this, this, the first verse says, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. The call of the gospel church is to come to Jesus, not because we are good, but because he is good. Yet all too often, we can miss that, we can forget that, we can start to think like the elders here saying, Jesus, come to, come to this man because he is worthy of you coming. Church, this can't be our cry. This can't be our hope. There is only one who is worthy. There is only one church with authority. He is the worthy one. And the worthy one, praise God, bids us to come to him. That is the gospel. And like the centurion, we, we can say, I am not worthy I'm, I am not worthy, but just say the word, Jesus. Just say the word, because 
I want to come back and, and finish by looking at this man's faith. We aren't certain, church, what this man knew about Jesus. We aren't sure how much this man knew about him. We aren't even sure how this man heard about him, honestly. We don't know much about this centurion's backstory here. We don't know. What we do know about this man is this, is that he had an understanding of who Jesus was. He understood that Jesus was a man of authority. That's what we know, that Jesus had all authority. We know that this man knew who Jesus was, and we knew that from this, Jesus marveled at him and said, what faith is this? So as we said earlier, the centurion's faith in what Jesus could do flowed out of who he believed Jesus to be. Church, in the same way, our faith in what Jesus can do, our faith in him to save us from our sin, forgive us, love us, heal us, set us free, change us, our faith in what Jesus can do flows directly out of who you and I believe Jesus to be. Church, if your view of Jesus is small, your faith in him will be small. But if, like the centurion, you are able to see Jesus for who he is, your faith will grow as you look upon the object of your faith. So as we close, let us see two things. One, who we are, and two, who Christ is. One, like the centurion, you and I, we are unworthy. We can do nothing to make ourselves worthy. And at the same time, number two, Christ is Lord and all authority is his. And he calls us, unworthy as we are, to come to him and to make us worthy through his work. This is the call of the gospel. This is grace. And so church, come to him. I want us to finish our time. I thought it would be fitting for us to finish our time singing the words we just read. Just as I am, without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me and that you bid me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come.